If you let's just jump right in. You guys ready to jump right in the Word of God? Last week uh, we heard from Ron and Janine Parrish. How many of you were here? Uh, if you weren't, you're going to want to take just a few minutes and go and listen to or watch that message online. And here's why: uh, it's because every once in a while you have an opportunity not just to meet one of your heroes, but to learn from them. And learning from Ron and Janine was weighty because of who they are. Not just who they are as people, but who they are to us. They have been obedient to what God has placed on their life for years and years and years. And so what that means is, is that when they say stuff, you feel it just as much as you hear it. And this is important for us to understand and, and to grab because really this whole series, what we're doing over the next couple of weeks is we're saying, God, we want to understand what it means when you call us to walk in the family of God. What's, what is the significance? What is the power in us walking in the family of God? What does that really mean? John 1.12 says, yet to all who died, received him. To those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. Look, we all come into the earth in a natural family. And then because of Jesus and the miracle of salvation, we are brought into God's family. And then we're called to live out our faith together in the family of God. Ephesians 2.19 says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together. Can everybody say that with me? Built together. Now say it like you're not watching golf. Built together. Thank you. You are being built together, joined together to rise, become a holy temple for the Lord, a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. What Paul, the author of this passage, is telling us is that the things that have divided us, both culturally and practically, pain that we've experienced that drives us away from wanting to lean into the family of God, that in Jesus, those things can be restored to us so that we can become together a dwelling in which God lives because the living God both dwells in each of us and he dwells among all of us. Are you hearing what I'm saying? The living God dwells in you and he dwells amongst us, meaning that apart from our lives being plugged into the family of God, our understanding of God will be limited to and through who God has revealed himself to be to you. 1 Corinthians 13, 9 says it this way, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but, we, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. 
When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put those ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. And then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part and then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Again, Paul, the guy who wrote this as well, is telling us in this verse that there will be a day where we look at Jesus face to face. And when we do, our understanding of the fullness of his glory and power and majesty will be totally completed. And all the questions we have will be answered. And all the things we don't understand, we will get. But that is going to happen then and we still live now, which means that we are looking in a reflection that we hear in part, we prophesy in part. But he has called us to be knit together because when my part meets your part, And your part meets their part. And their part meets their part. The picture, the full revelation, the bigger picture of who God is and all of his glory, all of those things put together, we will see him more clearly. Ephesians 3.10 puts it this way. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. There are things that God has for us that come alive in front of us when we're plugged in to the family of God that he's placed around us. Let me say that again. There are things in God that he has for us that are going to come alive in front of us when we're plugged into the family of God that is around us. And that's why when we look to and hear from those who have gone before us and we honor who they are and we honor how they have lived and we listen to what they have to say, it lands on our hearts with a weight that is hard to explain, but very easy to recognize. Last week when Janine just mentioned about the power of speaking blessings over our kids and grandkids and even just those who have made a significant impact on our lives, I don't know about you, but that hit me like a ton of bricks. So much so that it jump-started a holy habit within my own heart where I have started my day and I have spoken over my kids the the blessing of Romans 6, 24 that says the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. I can't get away from it. I can't get away from the power that I feel when I say it. And it's because of the life that Janine has lived. It goes from being a suggestion to a holy spark because it's a revelation that she's gotten. And so because she's gotten that revelation, when we allow her to say it, then all of a sudden we get it. And you might've been thinking like, man, I haven't thought about that. I'm just trying not to kill my kids. I haven't thought about blessing my kids. Right? And I'm like, me too. I'm with you 100%. 
But then you hear that and you're like, oh yeah, there's power in my tongue. There's life that I can speak into those who are around me. And when I do that, it's gonna bear fruit in their life. And I might not see it right now, but that fruit is to come. And this is really what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 4, which we talked about last week, which he admonishes us that fathers remind us of the ways of Christ. That fathers remind us of the ways of Christ. He's pushing the church in Corinth, which he was speaking to in this passage, to lean into not just the idea of heaven on earth, but to step into the power and the potential of the family of God on the earth. And where I want to lean today is I want to speak to the power and the potential of living through the lens of God's design for fathers. But here's what this message is not. Can I tell you what this message is not? This message is not a message to bash you as a father. Look, the enemy is going to try. This is such an important message. I believe this. The enemy is going to try to get you to eject yourself from the conversation because of shame and guilt and condemnation. This message is not a message to bash you as a father. And it's also, hear me, it's not a message for you to find ammunition to bash your father. That's not at all what this is. What this is, is leaning into the design of God, the purpose of God, of what it means to be a father and a spiritual father. Now look, I can already feel it. Can I speak to the pain in the room? Because some of you want to leave right now and you're like, okay, he's got about 25 more minutes. Is there anything else we could talk about for 25 more minutes? Or maybe I need an extended bathroom break. You want to leave, you, you want to get out because when you hear father, the pain that wells up in your gut is too great for you to bear. Because either you didn't have a father or you had an abusive father or your father left you. Your father was a jerk to you, said incredibly awful things to you. Maybe you don't know your father's name. Maybe all you feel is judgment from your father. You feel no love and acceptance from your father. And so because of the association of the word, we then project our earthly pain onto the heavenly father. Maybe your natural dad was amazing, but you got screwed up by a pastor who said incredibly weird things to you, was manipulative, Maybe you had a youth pastor that was saying he was investing in your life, but really all he was doing was trying to get you to do things for him versus putting God in you. And so this idea of, this, of, a, of a spiritual father or the, the mantle of spiritually fathering people, you're like, dude, I don't want to have anything to do with that because my example of that on the earth was so far from anything that I see alive in the word of God. I think I'm just going to give up on that. I'm going to distance myself from anybody in leadership, not just in church, but even in my job. Because you know what? I just can't take any more disappointment and pain. And I get it. Look, my dad was amazing. I'm so thankful that my dad was amazing. 
My dad's like my biggest fan. He still kisses me on the lips. It's extremely uncomfortable. But I don't know how to tell him not to. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. I'm like 41, and I still haven't had the conversation. I'm like, Dad, can we please, can we graduate to a handshake or something? Like, I, I love, but no, but it, I, just as much as I hate it, I love it. Right? I, lo- I love my dad so much, and he's kind, and he's gentle, and he's just like a freaking monster. He's ripped. He's like everything I want to be when I turn 67. He's just a stud. But just because my earthly father was amazing doesn't mean he was perfect. And just because you might look at my natural story and say, look, dude, you don't get it, man. You don't understand. Look, just this last week, I was in my office and I was hearing a story of so much pain and manipulation. It was just, I couldn't, there was no words. Like, I'm sorry just doesn't do anything when someone, you're just like, I can't believe that happened to you. And so hear me, just because like my dad was rad doesn't mean that I don't understand your pain. And I don't understand that when when you hear this idea of a father or God as father or being a good father or having a spiritual father, wherever this hits you, no matter what age you are, where season of life that you are in, like you hear that and you're just like, no, 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 anything but that. Like, let's talk about fasting, you know, like I'd rather talk about fasting than fathering. That's when you know we're hitting on something that maybe we should lean into. And here's, here's why I believe that the devil, our adversary, goes to great lengths to destroy our families and to destroy fathers. Because he knows that if he can disrupt our ability to love and trust our earthly fathers, it will plant a seed of distortion on how we see our heavenly father. And so that's why it even feels like that family is under assault in culture. And even what a family looks like and what a family should be like, it's because the enemy does not want healthy families in cities because when there's healthy families in cities, revival can hit that city. I'll never forget living in Seattle, Washington years ago and there was an apartment complex and they wouldn't let you live there unless you were married and had a kid. Because the city of Seattle, who gets everything backwards, the city of Seattle understood if we get families in this community, then this community is going to start functioning better. And it's because God designed families. And so let me speak to the dad and the dudes for really quick. All right. So not all the dudes are dads, but some of the dads are dudes. Dads and dudes, yes, this is an incredibly great responsibility. And I'm not going to lie to you. Fathering well matters. It is not something that should be taken lightly. It should not be something that you see as flippant. Being a good dad changes the course of history. 
It's a heavy mantle. It's, it's not an easy mantle. That's why most men give up on it because it's hard to carry it. And I don't want to water it down for you this morning. You need to be a good dad. You need to be a good dad. You need to be a faithful husband. You need to be a good dude. You need to honor the people that are around you. And that weight should feel like, whoa, wow. But here's the beauty of Jesus, that we are not to carry the weight of this responsibility alone. Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 says this, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And my heart for us today is that we would do just that. We would learn from Jesus, what it means to carry this yoke of being a good father. Jump with me to Acts 4. I know most of you don't even have Bibles anymore. You just have your phone. So scroll there or click there, whatever you do. If you don't have the Bible app downloaded, it's free. It's a great tool. But we're also going to put it on the screens for you. Acts 4. This is an awesome passage of scripture because this is what I like to call a Polaroid culture passage which means that you get a snapshot of the culture of the early church where you get a window on what it looked like to be involved in the people of God in the book of Acts. And I love running across scriptures like this because it inspires me and it puts a dream in my heart for what our church can look like and become. And this is what it says. All the believers were in one heart and mind. That in and of itself is a miracle. All the believers were in one heart and in one mind. You know what that is? They were believing the truth about God and they were unified in their minds towards Jesus. That is a miracle. I can't even get my family to agree on where to go for lunch. And we're not even in the same stratosphere. All right, we got people wanting sushi and burgers. These things don't coexist. I think they just gotten delusional because they drive by this place that says Donut Taco Palace when they come to church. I'm like, things don't exist together, okay? Like, you're either good at tacos or you're good at donuts. We're, we're, this is like, let's just find the most Googled words and make them in our title. Like, donuts and tight, all right, let's make it a restaurant. All right, like, that's kind of how, and if you really like that place, come talk to me afterwards and I'll introduce you to a better place, Okay. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had with great power. And the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. It's one of my favorite passages of scripture in all of the Bible. That like when the church is healthy and alive, that need is eliminated. This is so amazing. And from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sale and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Wow. And then check this out, verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus whom the apostles called Barnabas, 
which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. What a picture of the family of God. Let it be said of us that there is no needy among us. And, and man, when I hear stories of this happening in our church, it just fires me up because there is no better picture of the difference in the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world than generosity. And so look, stories that I've heard this week, people getting their counseling paid for, people getting meals brought to their house, people getting paid for to go to marriage intensive. This money's just flowing all over the place to those who don't so that they can do what they need to do so that they can get the help that they need. Good job, church. Good job, church. Let it be just the beginning that there's no needy among us, that we're just like so overwhelmed at who God is, that what he has allowed us to steward, we're like, God, help me steward this well to see the kingdom of heaven advance. In the family of God, I'm knit into and therefore change the city that I'm living in. I love hearing those stories. It's amazing that right on the back end of this very broad picture of the church, we get a very narrow story of one man. There's this declaration, there's no needy among them. Everybody's in one heart and one mind. Everything's rad. God's moving powerfully. And then all of a sudden we get introduced to a dude. An individual testimony that was connected to the corporate celebration which this is just a reminder that the corporate celebration is just a collection of individual testimony. And, and this person that we're getting knit to in this moment is this guy that is known as Barnabas. And, and, and his name means, his real name was Joseph. They, his nickname was Barnabas, I guess. And that means son of encouragement. What a cool thing to be known for. Son of encouragement. And what I want us to do is I want to look at the spirit that Barnabas carried and I want us to lay it on top of what I believe to be Barnabas's greatest revelation that he had from the father because ultimately how you see God will determine how you treat others. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Barnabas lived in such a way that he saw people around him differently than others saw them. And I believe that his revelation was so clear on God's ability to love and father and lead him that he was so overwhelmed that he's like, look, I've been given so much. I want to give it to the church because I want my life to be about people meeting God the Father. And we see this happening because Barnabas keeps popping up all throughout the book of Acts. He just keeps showing up in important places, doing important things with important people. And this is what we come to find out is that when God touches you, it changes you. When God touches you, it changes you. And what we're going to see here is that Barnabas was touched by God and it changed him. And his act of obedience was to give what he had to the church. And then ultimately, he changed his mission to being someone who went and spread the news of who Jesus really was 
to everyone. We also see that God touched this dude named Saul, who would be, come to be known as Paul, who we've quoted already a ton this morning. But Paul's beginning in God was powerful. And how many of you know that your life can be changed, but you can still have the same reputation? And so you've been changed, man. God touched you. You're like, oh, I'm a new man. But everybody who knew you is like, I don't know. I'm not sure. And Saul was not just a weird dude. He was a Christian-hating dude. And, And he was on a mission before God knocked him off of his, really knocked him on his back, literally, And brought such a transformation in him that everything that he did from that point on changed. I'm thankful that God knocks us off things sometimes and changes us. When I went to college, I had no desire to be a pastor. I wanted to be a business leader. And when I was in college, God knocked me on my back. And it changed my life and he gave me a new mission. But I remember, man, my life was so dramatically changed on the inside and I went home and I'm like, why are my parents still treating me like I haven't been changed? I'll never forget, I went home one summer and I'm like doing all the dishes and I'm like cleaning the house and I'm I'm like, I'm gonna serve my parents, man. I'm gonna serve them. Lord, let your light shine, you know? And like like halfway through the summer, like a month and a half in of like cleaning the kitchen and all this stuff, my parents are saying nothing, not acknowledging anything. I look at my mom, I'm like, mom, what, what, what else shall I do to be saved? And she looks at me and she's like, why do you want me to encourage you to do what you've always supposed to do? And I was like, dang it. Was I really that selfish before? That I'm actually like doing what I'm supposed to do. And it's my parents are finally like, finally, finally, he's not just consumed with himself. Right? Well, take that like times a million when now Saul burdened to be one who carries the gospel. But he still has the same face of the man who tried to kill people for the message that he now carries. And this is what happens in Acts 9. When he came to Jerusalem, this is speaking of Saul, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas, he shows up again. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had been preaching fearlessly in the name of Jesus. And so Saul stayed with them and moved freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. This is the moment, I think, that we begin to see the revelation of who God had revealed himself to be to Barnabas and how that shaped how he treated others. Because good fathers always, hear me, call out who we really are despite of what we have done. Let me say that again. Dads and dudes, write this down. Make yourself a note in your phone. 
Good fathers call out who we really are regardless of what we have done. Barnabas saw past the stains of Paul's past and he saw into the potential of his future. And this is what fathers and spiritual fathers do. We, we look not over the things that need to change within people that are around us, but we don't allow the brokenness to define them. We allow the potential of God to define them. And check it out. You know what that means? That means as spiritual fathers, we're putting the consistency of our character up for the unknown character of who we are fathering. When Barnabas said, hey, I vouch for this guy. I've seen him. What he was saying to the apostles who trusted Barnabas, I'll clean up any messes this dude makes. He's saying, I'm vouching for him. I'm going to be with him. I'm going to walk with him. I'm going to support him. I'm going to correct him and rally him in and say, you probably shouldn't have said that, bro. You know, I mean, like, I, when, when we are fathering our kids, we, we are also saying we're giving them opportunity. We're calling out the gold that's in them and we're walking with them saying, hey, we will stand with them as they are maturing. Sometimes, not sometimes, all the time, our character has to catch up to our gifting. And that's why sometimes when you get given more than your character can hold, it ends up falling apart. And right now, we don't have a generation that wants to be developed. Why? Because we have a fatherless generation. They go hand in hand. People don't have dads, so the idea of being developed by anyone is like, I don't need that. Why? Because that you're operating as an orphan. I have to take care of myself. I've got to do this myself. You have nothing that can teach me anything. I need to do it my way. You're here to stop me, to hurt me, to take advantage of me. And this is distorting not just our spiritual growth and development. I believe it's distorting our development in every area of life. You know, last week I had a moment where I was blown away both as a dad and a pastor. And those are so fun. Because at our North Campus, this guy named Brent Stone and his wife Brandy serve in our kids' ministry there almost every week. Like they're just like diehard and just incredible people, man. If you don't know the Stones, dude, like they're just so cool. Brent comes up to me after church and my son Kevin serves almost every week in kids' ministry up north. We have just a mantra as a family. This isn't mom and dad's thing. This is our thing. So we do church together. And so my kids are like serving the kids, kids stuff. And while they're there, you know, they help out in the classroom. And mostly they're just like running around and draining kids' energy and stuff. And Brent comes up to me after church and he says, hey, I just want to give you a heads up. Kevin has really been stepping up in class, and I think he's a leader. This is what Brent tells me. I think he's a leader. So I am going to let him teach the lesson with me next week. So I'm going to text you the lesson so he can begin to read it and go over it, and then I'm going to let him lead part of the lesson next week because I think he's a leader and he needs an opportunity to grow in that. As a dad, I'm going, 
You think he's a leader? You know? I'm like, oh, wow. Thank you for seeing my kid. And then as a pastor, I'm like, wow, that's exactly who we want to be. Like not just in kid stuff, but like in everything. Where we're a group of people that are like, dude, I see gold in you. And yeah, you might have some stains and some bumps and some rough edges, but I'm not going to let the stain of your past rob you of the potential of your future. And I'm going to invest in you and I'm going to call that out in you. And then you know what good fathers do? They don't just call you out. They give you opportunities to run. Good fathers shape you. They don't dictate to you. And this is actually what we see Barnabas do to Paul. It's amazing. In Acts 11, look, it says, some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Siren went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks, also telling them the good news about Jesus and about the Lord Jesus. The Lord handed the Lord's hand was on them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now, look, a little backstory on Acts 9. I know we're mowing through a lot of the Bible, but are you, are you tracking with where I'm going? In Acts 11 here, this is the impact of persecution that had happened when Saul actually, before God knocked him on his back, was overseeing the execution of church leaders. One of them was Stephen. When Stephen got stoned, the church scattered because the devil always wants to bring fear and intimidation to the church because he thinks that if he can scare us, it will stop us. But persecution always, always leads to the church growing. And that's what's happening in Acts 11. It says that the people were scattered and not just the people were scattered, the message that was in the people also was scattered. And so they go out and it says this in verse 22, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas, popped up again. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived, he saw what the grace of God had done. And he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Now watch this. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. He was like, there's this guy, I met this guy. I vouched for him a while ago and I think he needs to be here. And so he leaves a fruitful ministry. And he goes and looks for Saul. And it says, when he found him, he brought him to Antioch so for the whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught a great number of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. He called out the gold that was in Saul. And then he said, you know what? I'm going to go get you. I'm going to go find you. I'm going to bring you with me. I'm going to bring you into what I'm doing. Just like what Brent did to Kevin. Hey, we're going to go do this together. We're going to lead this thing together. And if you know the story of Barnabas and Paul, you know that in Acts 15, they, they had a little bit of a falling out. And it's amazing to me the nature of the tension that drove them apart. Because Paul, hear me, was growing 
in his anointing and in his authority as a leader to the church. We see in Acts 13 that he goes from being the guy that Barnabas went and got out of Tarsus and said, hey, come with me to an Acts 13. It says that while the church was worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul. So he goes from being the guy that Barnabas is going to go get to now he's being called out, not just by Barnabas, but by the, by the Holy Spirit and saying, this guy has a message and a mission that is unique. It says, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I've called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed hands on them and sent them off. And so they go off on this journey, but it's crazy. This dude named John Mark goes with them. John Mark actually bails on them. He quits in the middle of the mission. He comes to his senses, has like a, some sort of encounter where he realizes like, man, I blew it. So he tries to go back and join with them again. Barnabas, who carries the heart of the father, said, John Mark, we'd love to have you. Come on back, man be with us. Paul, who although was growing in his authority and his leadership was still operating like a son because he treated John Mark like a brother. He didn't treat him like a father. Brothers say, you screwed up, get out of here. That's what brothers say. This is, this lines up with what Jesus told us in the story of the prodigal son. The father said, I forgive you. The brother said, dude, you screwed up too much. Like, I can't even believe we're celebrating you. And so Saul, whose name eventually becomes Paul, looks at John Mark and says, no, dude, I'm not going to let you, I'm not going to let you come back. You bailed on us. And we see that he was still operating like a son. He was not yet operating like a father. In Till 2 Timothy 4. And in 2 Timothy 4, this is what Paul says. He just mentions, well, you know what, guys? Mark was really helpful for my ministry. <laughs> I love that. I love it. it kind of throws it at, well, huh? and it just goes to show you, kids, dads are always right. But hear me. I know that right now you're either super aware of the dad that you're not, are super aware of the dad that you didn't have. And that's all of us. And that is exactly why Jesus came. So that the Father in heaven can restore to us all that the enemy and sin and bad choices have stolen from us. The man that we use today to model what a spiritual father can and does look like became that because he met the heavenly father. Don't forget this all started in Acts 4 when Barnabas was so met by the power of the living God and the potential of the church that he sold everything that he had to become a part of the family of God. That's where the revelation that he lived from and then he treated others out of started. And that's the place that we have to start as well. 
No matter if you're here and you're like, man, I don't even know who my dad is. Or you're sitting here and you're realizing, man, I have not lived as a spiritual father to people around me. I haven't called them out. I haven't encouraged them. I haven't given them space to run. All of us and everyone in between has to start in the same place. Romans 8, 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you a slave so that you would live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we, if indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. I want you to hear this. Our Father in heaven is big enough to stand in the gap of who your dad was or wasn't to you. And he will pull you into an unblemished picture of who he is so that we can cry out, Abba, Father, the good Father, and receive the love and pleasure that he has for us. So do me a favor, stand to your feet. Dads and dudes, I want to talk to you for a second. If you want to step into who you are called to be, if you want to step into more, some of you are like, man, I'm trying to do this. You want to step into more. You want to step into a deeper understanding, a deeper revelation of what it means to be a father, to be a spiritual father that calls people up and out, creates lanes for them to run, covers them, doesn't expose them, shapes them, doesn't dictate to them. Or if you need to connect with the father's love, if you need the heavenly father to come and to impact you the way that he impacted Barnabas, Right now, I want you just to begin to make your way forward. If you want to be a kingdom-oriented father, spiritual father, disciple maker, I want you to make your way up here because I want us to pray for these men who are saying, I want to be a good dad. I want to carry this mantle of being a good father, both practically and spiritually. So if you guys would just extend your hands to these dudes. Guys, just want you to open up your arms to receive because being a great dad starts with receiving the love of the best dad in heaven. And so Lord, right now, I just pray for every one of these men. Lord, I pray for grace to carry what you've called them to carry. Lord, I say, as for us in this house, we will be men of God that stand up and step into every bit of what you have for us. We will call out those around us. We'll call out 
the gold that is in our kids. We'll call out the power that is on their lives, their potential, even when they're standing sometimes in a mess. Lord, I pray for confidence and courage and patience to be able to demonstrate the heart of the Father to their kids and to those who they're gonna invest in. Lord, I'm asking right now for a inheritance beyond their wildest dreams as they're saying that today, right now, I receive the mantle of being a dad that calls out and gives room for those who are around me. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Guys, don't go anywhere. We're just gonna begin to worship. I want you just to create space in your heart just to let God minister to you, the love of God.